All right, good morning. Good to see everyone here. Hope you've had a good week. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we begin our time in the Word together. We ask, Father, that you would hallow these moments to yourself. That in them we would see you. We would honor you. We would worship you. We ask you that you would speak to us through your word and by your spirit. In the name of Jesus, we ask. Today we begin a a new series on the Ten Commands. Title of the series is based in Exodus chapter 34. If you have a Bible, please uh, open it to Exodus chapter 34. We'll just look briefly at verse 27 and 28. Exodus 34, 27, And the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Now, there are really two things here. The first one is the statement, the Ten Commandments, the name of these commands given by God. Uh, The word there is, in the Hebrew, it's not actually commands, but words, the Ten Words. Ten significant words. In in Greek, we refer to this as the Decalogue. These Ten Logos words. The Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words, or as we're calling them here, the Ten Commands. And we get the impression, particularly in a few other texts, that the writing of them in stone is done by God himself. This one is a bit vague on that point. But you get the idea... Turn back to Exodus 20, then, if you would. Exodus chapter 20. The Ten Commands are recorded in Scripture in two places. We find it here in Exodus 20, verse 2 through 17, and Deuteronomy chapter 5. Um, And and we're going to look at both of these as we move through the series. Um, but we'll kind of base it here in Exodus because this is probably the first one that was written, the first recording of it. So there are a few differences between them. They're mostly the same, a few differences. We'll look at that um, as it becomes relevant throughout, but uh, we will base it in Exodus. 
Now, there's a number of areas I want to address, God willing, as we move through this series. Um, one of them is the commands themselves. So I do want to actually look at what, what are the Ten Commandments, because we're, we're in a uh, time in history when we're not likely to have even learned them as children and certainly not as much emphasis on catechism. And so I want us to be familiar with them and to understand what they are and what they mean. But that's just the beginning. I also want us to look at uh, and understand their structure, how they're put together and what that means. Uh, also the relationship to the Old Covenant, in what way are they connected to the Old Covenant? Also, their relationship to the broader Mosaic Law. So we know that there's all sorts of law that was given by God through Moses. How, do, how does this connect to that? What, what's its relationship? And then also its relationship to the Gospel. What is the relationship of the Ten Commandments to the Gospel? And then finally, um, hopefully, throughout the series, we'll get a sense of our relationship to the Ten Commandments. How do how do they affect us today? Are, are we responsible to obey them and that sort of a thing? So, today, we're going to begin the series by looking briefly uh, at the first of the Ten Commands, where we're going to see that God, in offering Himself to us in covenant relationship, requires our exclusive loyalty. Have a look there in Exodus 20. We'll begin in verse 1, continuing on from the reading. Verse 1 says, And God spoke all these words, saying... Now, in our reading this morning, we saw the immediate context leading up to verse 1. And there's quite a bit of rigmarole. It's, it's God saying, you know, come up onto the mountain, now go down and tell them what to do, get them all ready, tell them not to come onto the mountain, and then he says, all right, I'll do that, and he does that, and then he comes back up, and he says, now go back down and tell them to make sure they listen, and then he comes back up with Aaron, and so there's quite a bit of setup to verse 1, God spoke all these words, and all these words, as we're going to see in verse 3 through uh, 17, is is the ten, the ten words, the ten commands. So when we read verse 1 and hear God spoke all these words, we, we get a sense that there's something extraordinary uh, taking place here. God is speaking, and when it says God spoke all these words, the preceding chapter makes it clear to us he he is actually speaking audibly, right? They can hear him. He's speaking out loud. He's speaking to a nation, and he's speaking from a mountain, right? This is extraordinary. The mountain is not coping well. It's it's shaking. It's smoking. It's uh, got thunder and lightning all around it, and then apparently it is it is God that's the one who's sounding these trumpets. And apparently they're very, very loud. And notice how the people respond to verse 1, which is God speaking all these words. Look down in verse 18. The, the 10th commandment finishes in verse 17. So verse 18, we get their immediate response to him speaking these words. It says, now... When all the people saw the thunder 
and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. All right, so th- these people are scared. They're, they're terrified. They think they're going to die. They, they have survived God speaking these ten words. They've survived it, and they say, never again. You go talk, sort it out, come and tell us, and we promise we'll listen, as long as you promise that God will not speak to us directly. Again, guarantee you that every person who was there that day told this story to their grandkids, their great-grandkids, their later years. I, I was there the day that God spoke out of the mountain. We, we in our time in history, we talk about, you know, it was where, where were you in Pearl Harbor when you heard about Pearl Harbor? Or where were you when you heard about 9-11? Well, this is their that. Where were you when? When God spoke to us from a mountain. Not only is this the only portion of the law that God speaks directly to the people, audibly. Um, It's the only time I can think of when God speaks directly to a large audience ever in all of history. This is an extraordinary, remarkable moment. The question is, well, when God speaks to a nation audibly, what does he say? Verse 2. Verse 2, he says the first command. Actually, probably the prologue. We'll get there. He says, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, verse 2 is probably the prologue to the Ten Commands as a, as a covenant document. And, and we'll, we'll talk about that at some point later. But today I want to look at it briefly because it really sets up the context immediately for the first commandment in verse 3. So, God speaking personally and directly, audibly to Israel says, I am Yahweh. That word Lord, you'll notice in your Bible, it's in small caps. I am the Lord. That always means, when it's in small caps, whether it's translated God or Lord, that means the Hebrew is Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. That is God's personal name. He says, I am Yahweh, your God. So this is not just another way of kind of saying, I'm God, your God, or I'm the Lord, your God, or something. He's saying, here's my name, and here's who I am. I'm your guys, go. So first he identifies himself there by name. Now, there are many gods in the world that the Israelites inhabit. This not unusual for gods to have names. In Egypt, back in Egypt, that they just left, 
Uh, There's Ra and Isis and Anubis. They're headed to Canaan where there will be Dagon, Asherah, and Moloch, and many other gods. But this god identifies himself as Yahweh. He's got a name. And this is Yet and he clear, clearly and forcefully asserts, I am Yahweh, your God. Right? They've got their gods, but your God is named Yahweh, and your God is speaking to you. I am Yahweh. Now, how he became their God is a question of history, right? Um, the, he chose to be their father, Abraham's, God. Um, But here, he does not appeal back to that history. Right? He doesn't say, I am Yahweh, your God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He does that sometimes. Here, he doesn't. Here, he says, uh, he focuses on the relationship with this particular generation of Israelites. He says, "I'm, I'm not... That God, I'm, I'm the God who just brought you out of Egypt, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. Right? So he's, he's saying, he's not appealing to the past, he's appealing to something they just saw, they just saw him bring them through the Red Sea. They just saw him rain these plagues down on Egypt. They've just seen it and he says, that's me, I'm that guy and I'm your God. He says, I brought you out of the land of Egypt. The, the concept here, you get a sense, it's kind of like, now, now, listen all of you, I've brought you here today to tell you something, right? This is what I've just done. I brought you out of the land of Egypt here for this. And the more we study it, we're going to realize that is what he's done. This is not just a stop along the way. The only reason Israel needs to spend time in the wilderness is for this. It's the only reason they're supposed to be here. They are brought here for this moment, which will be a... Um, it, it is a moment that the nation of Israel still looks back to as massively significant, as setting up their identity as a nation rather than just a family. Right? This is it. This is the constitutional moment. key here to get um, context and clarity is beginning of chapter 19, I think it is. On the third, verse 1, on the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land. Third new moon. So it's maximum three months. Somewhere between two and three months since they marched out of Egypt. This is fresh on their mind. Between that time, the Red Sea has occurred. God has just done this. Now he says, I am Yahweh, your God. I did this. Now, I have some things to tell you, so buckle up. Right? Here it is. Here's the first thing that we need to get clear, and that's the third, uh, the first commandment. Verse 3. Here we go. Verse 3. You shall have... No other gods before me. 
It would be a classic and common mistake to think that this text is condemning polytheism, the idea that there are many gods, or that it is affirming monotheism, the idea that there's one God, right? Um, It is not. These things are true, of course. There are not many gods. There is one God. And God will say that elsewhere. But that would be a misunderstanding of what he's saying here. The way we know that is that when we read the text, it does not say that there aren't other gods. Right? You shall have no other gods before me. That's all it says. Indeed, in the ESV, it almost sounds as if he'd be okay with them having other gods as long as they weren't before him, right? Like if he were the superior god. And and this it comes as a result of a, of a difficulty in the text. I'm going to just talk about that for a minute. Um, you'll notice if you have an ESV, there's a footnote there that gives an alternative translation of no other gods, instead of before, it's besides me, instead of me, right? And that would translate it as I'm the only God you can have right um, and that's a possible rendering but we can't be anywhere near sure of that um, a, a literal translation would be you shall have no other gods in front of my face or, or the idea is in, in, in my presence right um, so it's not, it's not really saying other than me, or besides me, uh, saying, no other gods in my presence. It's saying less than that thing, but it's saying something very significant. The idea here is that God is offering himself to the nation of Israel for a covenant relationship. He already did this with Abraham hundreds of years earlier. And remember in verse 19, he calls Moses up and he says, go talk to the people. He says, if they'll keep my law, I'll enter a relationship. I'll be close to them. And he says, go check and see if they're going to do that. And Moses goes back down and says, do you want to do that? And they say, yes. Right? So so God is proposing a relationship here, a covenant relationship. We'll, we'll, we'll talk more about that, God willing, as we move through and get a bigger picture understanding of what's happening. But the, the key here is that God is offering himself to Israel uh, in a real personal relationship. I say personal in the sense of national, not, not God and individuals, but God and the nation. And we look at that with our stunning privilege today and think, well, that's not as good as personal. But that was still mind-blowing. Even even the smaller regional gods didn't have open relationships with their people. They had a very um, opaque relationship, a relationship which was not just back and forth, not friendship. All right, so he's offering himself in this covenant relationship, and he doesn't want anything else mixed into that picture. Right? You, you shall have no other gods in my presence. You have me. I'm offering you me. And if you take me, and this, in a way, we could look at the Ten Commandments as 
terms of this covenant. He says, if, if you're going to take me, you can't take the other ones. This is going to be an exclusive relationship. So in verse 2, he says, I am your God. Right? Other nations have their gods, but I will be your God. And, and I, I don't want anyone else in that mix. Verse 3, no other gods in my presence. The idea here is that God in offering himself is offering more than enough. If you have this God, you don't need all the other gods. See, the other people didn't believe that. The other people had their little gods, but if something was going wrong with, for instance, the rain, and their God wasn't the rain God, they would go to whoever was the rain God and appease him. All right? It's not at all unusual in the, in the ancient novels and stories to have them kind of think, well, what's our problem? Well, we need to make sure to go look after that God. So if you were a shepherd, you would make sure to set up a statue of the God of the pastoral God, right? And if you were a sailor, you would make sure to to, to look after the the sailor gods. But sometimes you might, you know, have sheep, and so you need to look after the sheep god. You know, like that, that's kind of how it was. They they served functions. They did stuff for you, so you had to appease them. If if the ocean is getting in your way and storming and won't let you cross, you you must have made them mad or need to do something to. Satisfy them. So, so there was this kind of utilitarian um, relationship, and uh, God says, "No, uh, whatever you need, I'm going to be your God." So, we don't. You don't. If you have me, you won't need anybody else. He wants to make it clear that he expects loyalty in this relationship. Now. Uh, step back for a moment. Remember that God is speaking directly to Israel, audibly. Right? They're so scared they think they're going to die. This offer of a covenant, a, a heightening, we could say, of the covenant with Abraham is a mind-blowing offer. Right? God just started to speak. This is... Just at the beginning of this thing. They're just like, whoa! And here he says, it's just me. I'm your God. And it's just me. A mountain is exploding in front of them because this God is on it. And he says, while I'm here, no other gods. We're dealing with a God here who has a self, uh, a healthy self-image, right? He knows what he's worth. And he expects to be treated like he's worth, to be valued like he's worth. A lesser God could say, well, I'm your God. Make sure you sacrifice to me, right? Make sure you bring offerings to me. That's what they did. If you forget to bring offerings, I'll get mad and I'll let you know. But this God says, I'm your God and I'm so so great, no other gods. This is going to be exclusive or it's not going to be. the first thing he addresses with them. I expect loyalty. There's something else going on here, though. This relationship that God is offering, it's not just some sort of a theoretical thing, like, hey, if I'm, you know, in the documents as as your official God, 
make sure you get that in the Constitution, we'll be all good. No worries. No. This relationship is so real that he actually cares if you worship him. Like, he cares. It bothers him. He's jealous if you bring in other gods. There's not going to be just sort of a casual, theoretical relationship where, yeah, yeah, he's, he's the god, but whatever, you know. No. He's your god, and he cares if you're his god, uh, if he's your god and you're his people. He cares that you're loyal in that relationship. It's a two-way relationship, in other words. Which, again... When a mountain's exploding in front of you because this God is on it, is mind-blowing. He cares and wants a relationship with us. Matters to him. This God. So, that's the text. We're going to stop here. I want us to see, though, for a moment, um, something of the implications of this text for us as we we finish up today. Um, We're not Israel. We're not a direct parallel to these people. Um, this is the Old Covenant, or we call it the Old Testament. Um, we live under the, the New Covenant, the, the New Testament in Jesus' blood, Luke, Luke 22. But this is the same Yahweh that we worship. Same God. Uh, and he is still a mountain-combusting God. And he has offered himself to us in a new covenant relationship in his blood. And he still expects exclusive loyalty from us. So my questions to us this morning as we close... Really two. First is this. Does he have your exclusive loyalty? So the relationship he offered to them was national. The relationship he offers to you is personal. One to one. But he insists on exclusive loyalty. Does he have it? And and the second kind of flows from that. Do you realize what you have in having God? Right? So when you think of how in, in Christ God has opened the way for us to ascend the mountain and speak to him personally as if we were Moses himself. Has your loyalty to him increased? in proportion to his kindness. God says, you shall have no other gods before me. Father, we are Pressed again this morning with the privilege we have being able to approach you directly, 
individually, without a prophet or a priest to mediate, that in Christ, because of our union with Him and because of His mediatorial role between you and us, We are entitled to speak to and relate to, not just nationally, but personally, to the God of the trembling mountain. We ask you to impress this truth upon us this morning. Amen.